Hello, everybody. It's good to see you guys again. It feels like it's been a long time, huh? So we had, uh, we had two weeks ago all worship night here at this church, which was a really cool thing. Um, that was where we had a number of different churches from the community gather together uh, from different backgrounds, different traditions, and worship together. Um, and if you were here, uh, we began Crosspoint pretty late that night. Many of you guys um, uh, were not here, and so it's felt like a long time. Uh, and then last week we had After Dark. Um, many of you raised your hands if you were there. How many of you guys helped out with After Dark? Promotion, running the event, doing stuff like that. That's awesome. Um, that's really cool. So I got, to, uh, I got to talk to J.D. Rogers, who organized a lot of the on-campus stuff. He really just travels around and does that event. And uh, we were just talking about how it went overall. And one of the things he said in particular was, um, you guys made his work so much easier. Uh, there was a, there, the first meeting that we had right afterwards, he said just a flood of Crosspoint students who were there eager and ready and were there throughout the week, really. And so that's encouraging for me to hear as your pastor. Uh, I commend you guys for just being faithful in that. That's awesome. Uh, and one of the things that I just want to encourage you in is that that's something that can be ongoing and continuing. Um, this, is, this is a cool thing to be a part of one of those big movements where the Lord shows up. And, you know, there's actually a lot of follow-up for people to, to um, just get plugged into a church and they heard the gospel for the first time and really accepted it. And so that's beautiful fruit. But one of the things that I want to put before you is that every day you're on that campus, you know, every day you're sitting in classes beside people who don't know that there's a God in heaven who knows them, who loves them, who's paid everything necessary to draw them back, right? And so as you're in your classes, as you're in your relationships with people, invite them to community group, invite them to church, Another thing I want to make you aware of, for the first time, uh, we actually have outreach efforts going on on campus uh, for Crosspoint. And uh, we have a wonderful intern named Brianna Hagler. Brianna, can I just have you stand up and wave to everybody? Everybody, this is Brianna Hagler. Um, she's taken this bold step of kind of going where no one has gone before in some senses uh, and just doing different activities on campus. And one of the things that we really need is just extra manpower and presence there and just faithfulness in that. Um, and so there's nothing specific to announce in terms of an event right now, but I just want you to keep your ears open. I want you to know that that's going on. You'll be hearing about that in your community groups, uh, but we'll also have announcements kind of coming for you uh, to be aware of. But there's just simple ways that we can be reaching out to people and saying, hey, um, let me push past just the normal surface level and say, let me get to know you and share the hope that I have in Jesus with you. You know, um, but I'm proud of you guys. I want to encourage that just to continue to flow. Okay, um, let's do a little bit of a refresher in the book of Mark because it has been a little bit of time. Um, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Mark. And as you do, I'm just going to do a brief flyover. So we opened up this year and we said that Mark is telling a beautiful story. He's proclaiming good news. And this good news specifically is that God is coming and restoring his reign on the earth, bringing new life through Jesus, the anointed king, his unique son. God is intervening in a dark place to restore, to renew, to redeem, and he's doing that through a man named Jesus, the anointed king, the son of God. 
And so we've been walking through story after story in this book by Mark, and we've seen how Jesus the King interacts with different people. And what we're seeing is, one, the character of the King that God has chosen. Sounds like I'm beating on a drum up here. Sorry, guys. Um, We see the character of the King. But we also get these glimpses into what the nature of God's reign is. So whenever Jesus heals bodies, whenever Jesus frees people from demonic oppression, whenever Jesus cleanses the unclean, whenever he welcomes the sinner in and he forgives them of their sins, this is what God's reign on earth is about. This is what God invading in a dark space is all about. And early on in the gospel, we saw Jesus just on a roll. He's doing awesome things and people responding well. And it doesn't take long, though, until some hiccups start to happen. Not everybody's on board with this guy. In fact, it's the religious elite, the people that you probably last expect, who are opposed to him. And so we begin to see this contrast between people who receive Jesus in faith and people who lack faith and are actually rejecting the king. And when they reject the king, they actually reject God's reign on earth for themselves. And so that's going to pop up again in this passage. We're going to see the contrast between faith and the no faith. But one of the things that I want to kind of draw to the surface for you tonight is just the simple nature of what faith is. Uh, I want to I submit to you that faith is this humble, trusting openness to God's work in your life. It's a humble, trusting openness to God's work in your life. Now, I think whenever I say faith, many of you might think of rational content. I believe specific facts about Jesus. I believe specific things about God. I believe specific things about salvation. That's what faith is. And yes, that's part of it. That's for sure part of it. But there's a whole nother part of it. I would say probably the meat of faith is really a relational thing. It's a humble, open trust of God, welcoming him to work in your life. One of the ways that I can think of it to illustrate this reminds me of my marriage. Um, I've been married to my sweet wife, Amy, for five years. And it's been, it's been a beautiful five years. It really has. I can't tell you how many times that new people meet Amy and they walk up to me and they're almost like shocked. They're like, bro, you did good. <laughs> and behind that, I kind of feel like, okay, how did that happen, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. So it's been a good five years. Uh, but even in the midst of that, like we've, we've had to grow and struggle and walk through difficult seasons together um, and kind of learn from those times. And there was one time about two years into marriage that it just got particularly difficult. Um, I was in the middle of seminary, which was just really busy and taxing, um, and Amy was super patient in that, but that was a strain on our relationship. We had just entered into an apartment ministry, so we were running events all the time, and so our time was just almost non-existent. So we were tired, and then family stuff was just blowing up for a number of different reasons, and so all of these things were just pressing in on us. We were having a hard time, and as we were kind of coming down to the end of that season, we had to have some pretty honest and frank conversations that were difficult with each other, Um, and one of the things that I had to learn as a husband is that there's ways that I need to open myself up to receive love from my wife. That requires humility, and that requires trust. You see, at this point, I had been frustrated because 
I wasn't being communicated with in a way that I would have liked. I would have liked her to ask about school or what I'm thinking or different things like that. Amy wants to do those things, but she just didn't know that before. And so what it took for me is to say, okay, like it's helpful to receive love in these ways. I kind of need that from you. And she was great. She responded positively, and things have been wonderful since then. But for me, I don't know whether it was because I was a male. It's like masculine pride. I don't want to admit need. I don't know if it's because my story, the way that, you know, I've kind of grown up. I didn't want to admit need. Um, I don't know what it was, but there was definitely an issue of pride there. It felt really weird and awkward to say to my wife, I need this from you. Another part of it was trust. It's difficult to open up and be that vulnerable and say, hey, I'm really weak in this area and it would be great and refreshing to me if you would just encourage me and love me in this way. Whenever you're doing that, you're trusting that that person's going to respond well and that they're actually going to follow up in a positive way. And it was hard to do that. But I'm so glad I did. It's been wonderful for our marriage. In a similar and parallel way, our relationship with God requires the same sort of thing. This humble, trusting openness to him. Saying, I need you, and I trust you to meet me in my need. It's a humble, trusting openness to God. Not just rational content. Yes, that's there. The relational part of it is this humble, trusting openness to his work in your life. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 tonight. And what we're going to see is really three stories. The first two stories are going to be focused on two miraculous works that Jesus does where there's faith present. And then the third story is going to be this really kind of shocking story where there is no faith. And not only does Jesus not do any miraculous works, he's actually, the text says, unable to do any miraculous work. Faith disbelief, different ways that Jesus responds to that, okay? So go ahead and pick up in verse 21 in Mark chapter 5. These are going to be the two examples of humbling, humble, trusting pursuit of the king's help, okay? Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side of the lake, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, begging him, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. Here we have the first example in Mark of somebody who has religious influence responding well to Jesus. So this is a, this is a unique guy. Jairus, he's in his position of influence of stature in the community he's like a leader in the synagogue there so he's respected he's got social power and yet look at the way he approaches Jesus he sees him he falls down on his knees right before him and he just begins to beg him I want you to think about coming up to somebody and falling on your knees and begging them for something a human being I don't know how many of us have ever done that before, but the awkwardness that you feel even thinking about that is the same in the ancient time, right? You bow before kings, you bow before gods. 
Those are the people you bow before. Here's this man of social influence, stature in the community, a a position of power, and he comes up and he falls on his knees and he says, please, I have no other hope except for you come and lay your hands on my daughter that she might live. This man, Jairus, approaches Jesus in humility and trust. He's in a moment of desperation, and this is his one shot. Jesus, the miracle worker, is in town. He's got to come home. And then we're going to see that as Jesus heads on his way, he gets an interruption, as Jesus so often probably did. He gets an interruption by an unclean, suffering woman who approaches him in imperfect faith, but Jesus still honors her, okay? She approaches in imperfect faith, but Jesus still welcomes her. So let's go ahead and read. Pick it up in, sorry, I lost my page. Verse 24, end of verse 24. And a great crowd followed him as he was on his way and thronged about him. And there was a woman in this crowd who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had had and was no better but rather grew worse. So here we have this woman who really is, for her whole adult life, suffering in every way that she can. Physically, she's got something going on where menstruation is off, right? It's not the once a month deal. This is non-stop. And so, yes, uncomfortable, but then just the sapping power of that in her body, like, I as a male can't obviously understand that, Um, but that's a drain on her physically. And I want you to think also, in Jewish culture, for a woman to be in a menstrual period makes her unclean, which means that nobody can touch her, She can't enter into the temple to worship. She is like sequestered off for a time until that ends and then she goes to the cleansing rite and then she's back in. This is just the normal rhythm for women in Jewish culture. But for her, there's no stop to that. Like she hit adulthood and that just continued. Nobody can touch her. She can't be married. She can't worship in the temple. She is that unclean woman. On top of that, so she's got physical suffering, she's got emotional, relational suffering. On top of that, she's seen doctor after doctor after doctor. And I don't know if you've ever had like a family member or a friend who's been really sick and had seen expert after expert after expert, but like whenever they continue to fail and continue to misdiagnose and not be a help, that's pretty frustrating. Like that's discouraging. And she spent all her money and the text says she didn't, even, she didn't get better She actually got worse. And so here she is. She's suffering physically. She's suffering emotionally, relationally. She's suffering financially. And here she is in the midst of this crowd. She's heard that Jesus, the miracle worker, is in town. And she wants to get near. So as she approaches, she's going to demonstrate an imperfect faith. She's going to focus on, if I can just grab his garment... And yet Jesus is kind and he kind of redirects her faith but still honors it. Okay, so look at verse 20, 27 with me. This woman had heard the reports about Jesus and so she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She's trying to do this in private. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up 
And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So you can see here, this woman has a faith that is just slightly off. She's not particularly focused on Jesus as a person, the one who has the power. She's more focused on his garment. It's common in the ancient world to feel that um, items that are attached with powerful people have power in themselves. Right, so they're kind of like talismans. If I can touch his necklace, if I can grab his cloak. You see this in some of the majority world with uh, icons and different things like that. This is the same thing for her. She wants to just touch his garment. That's really where her focus is. And yet, Jesus is going to kindly redirect her faith and say, it's, it's faith in me that's made you well. And he's going to restore her before everybody else. Take a look at verse 30. And Jesus surrounded by people, people mobbing him, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, are you serious? You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? In other words, who's not touching you right now? <laughs> like just everybody here. And then he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I've been sick for 12 years. It's been made me unclean. I've suffered all this time trying to fix it, and nothing's worked. I have nothing left. I heard that you were here, and I just had to try. I know I shouldn't press in in a crowd because that makes everybody around me unclean. I know I shouldn't touch a holy man because that makes you unclean. And I, I'm sorry, but it worked, right? And then look at Jesus' response, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Not my garments, your faith. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So even this, though this woman had an imperfect trust or hope, Jesus redirects it. He's kind. And before everybody, he says, look, it's your faith in me that has made you well. And then he clearly says, you've been healed. Now go in peace. Go in wholeness. This is him restoring her before the eyes of the community, which is a big deal in that culture. They need to know that she's healed. They need to know that she's clean. And he's doing that in front of everybody in a very public way. One, to teach her that it's faith in him that heals, and then two, to restore her before everybody else. This is Jesus the King showing mercy and compassion even whenever there's imperfect faith present. And so there's some of you here tonight who feel overwhelmed because you just don't know what this book is all about, right? You might go to community group and you feel overwhelmed. And you say, this thing it's crazy. It's beyond me. I feel like I don't belong here. Like my faith is minuscule. It's a seed of rice in comparison to everybody else. And what I want to point you to is this woman should be an encouragement to you. Jesus is not looking for theologians to come up and trust him. Jesus is looking for those who are humble and who are open to his work in their lives and trust him. And he is kind and merciful to grow and to mature and to correct even imperfect faith. And so if you find yourself in that boat, you feel overwhelmed, you feel like you don't belong here, like this should just maybe be done, I just want to encourage you, just continue. We all begin somewhere. We all begin somewhere. 
Continue to read the scriptures. Be in community. Draw from others. Continue to seek the Lord in prayer. He'll continue to grow your understanding. He'll continue to grow your relationship with him. Like there was a time whenever I remember being in community group and they were talking about Jews and Gentiles and these people and predestination. And I was like, oh my gosh, where am I? You know, um, the Lord's merciful. And he takes even imperfect faith and he can grow it and mold it and shape it into what it needs to be. Don't worry about that, okay? Persist. That's a little side note. <clears throat> but we need to pick up back on the main story because this was an interruption. Jesus was headed to Jairus' house. There's a serious matter at hand. And yet, in the delay, Jairus' daughter has died. And it's even in the face of death that Jesus turns to Jairus, encourages and rewards his faith by resuscitating his daughter from the dead. Pick it up with me in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? I want you to think what it would be like for Jairus in that moment. He's seen his daughter go from bad to worse to being on death's doorstep. And then there was this glimmer of hope where Jesus, the miracle worker, he's in town and he actually can come to my house. So he goes and gets Jesus and they're on the way and he's excited and then he turns around and he realizes there's some sort of disruption. There's just some, some sort of delay. Some woman is on her knees talking to Jesus. She's weeping. Everybody's just staring at her. I don't know what's going on, but we got to go. And then he turns around and looks, and people are coming from his house. And he looks in their eyes, and they don't even have to say. He knows what they're going to tell him. Think of the hope that would just be crushed in that moment and the despair that would set in. His little daughter, who he loves, is gone. He could do nothing. For him, he would have thought, that's that. There's no returning from death. Jesus healed people physically, I've heard. He can cast out demons, I've heard. Death is different. And yet, in the moment, Jesus turns to him and encourages his faith. Take a look, verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what they said, said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, the three key disciples out of the 12. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, they scoffed at him, they ridiculed him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and the three disciples who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, old enough to walk. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, astonishment, shock. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So even in the face of death, Jesus turns to Jairus and says, don't fear, believe. In the same way that you approach me, believe. 
And then he goes. And as he says, this girl's not permanently dead. And he's ridiculed and he's scoffed at. So he ridicules and scoffs at death by just raising her with a touch and a phrase. When faith is present, God does mighty things. When faith is present, Jesus is there to bring the reign of God into the lives of people to renew, to restore, to redeem, to save, in all the meanings of that, physically, spiritually. It's not always imperfect. Like it's not always selfless. Jairus wanted his daughter to be healed. He was in a point of desperation, and that, draw, that urged him to go after Jesus. But Jesus saw that as faith, and he honored it. It's not always perfectly accurate, like the woman. But Jesus is kind and corrects, but still honors that. When faith is present, when people approach God, Jesus, in humble openness and trust, God works in mighty ways. And yet when faith is not present, that doesn't happen. We're going to see in this next story that even in his hometown of Nazareth, there's skeptical rejection of the king. And they receive nothing from God. So let's go ahead and look at verse, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 6. Here we're going to see that even though the people of Nazareth are amazed at Jesus, they're familiar with him and skeptical of him and they reject him. It's their familiarity that's a barrier to their faith. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 6. So Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They were scandalized by him. So, his hometown peeps know that he's wise. They know that he's powerful. They don't deny that. They see it and they're shocked, but immediately their shock turns to skepticism. He has an ordinary job. He grew up here. We know his family. And I would point to you, whenever they say the son of Mary, I think that's a slur. Like, I think they're calling Jesus an illegitimate son. Um, Jesus was born from Mary, the virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And she knew that was going to come because an angel came to her in a dream. Nobody else in the town got the update, though. Right? Hey, guys, don't look at her bad. Like, this is a holy pregnancy that was caused by God himself. They, they were left to their own guesses as to what happened here. Right? Why do I say that the son of Mary is a slur? In Jewish culture, you call a son by his father's name. It would be Jesus, the son of Joseph. Even if Joseph is dead, that's still who Jesus is. And they're saying, he's the son of Mary. We know that. Who's his father? I don't know. Right? And so I want you to feel the weight of this. It's like, we see the job that you've done. Like, it's a carpenter job. That's an ordinary job. We know your family. You grew up here. And your family history is a little bit speckled. So whatever you're saying and doing, yeah, kind of not for us. 
their familiarity with Jesus actually is a barrier to their faith. Their skepticism hardens their heart and they reject the king. And I want you to see the result of that. Jesus is not surprised at their unbelief, but it's very clear that they're not going to receive anything from God's invading reign. Take a look at verse 4 with me. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Get this, Mark says, And he could do no mighty work there. Literally, he was unable to do any mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. He was shocked at their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. So Jesus sees the reaction. He's not surprised. He says, look, this is always how it's been. Those who are God's servants, the people around him who know him well, they tend to reject him. Right? Their familiarity with those humans makes them think, you can't be the special servant of God. Whatever you have to say, whatever you want to do, I know you. And it's not for me. So he's used to that. And then Mark has this almost shocking language. Jesus was unable to do any mighty work there because of their unbelief. That statement is not saying that Jesus doesn't have the power <clears throat> to do mighty works. It's not like Jesus is a genie and he needs somebody to rub the, the lamp for him to do the things that he wants to do. It's that without faith you can't receive it. Faith is the way you receive from God. And if faith is not present, then there's nothing to receive. You've made your choice. You're standing apart from God, and you want nothing from him. It's not that Jesus didn't have the power. It's that these people had no way of receiving it. So we see these two examples. We see two stories where people approach Jesus in this humble trust, open to his work in their lives, desiring it, yearning for it. And then we see that contrasted against his hometown. People were familiar with him. And because of that, are totally closed off to receiving anything from him or God through him. And if we're honest, like we can really think about a lot of barriers to our own faith. Like God calls us to approach him in humble trust to be open to his work in our lives. And there are numerous barriers that get in the way of that, that block us. Whether we're believers are people who are trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is and what we think about him. The same case is there. There are barriers to our faith. So I want to talk about a few. I want to talk about over-familiarity because we live in the Bible Belt. I want to talk about just a posture of independence from God. And I want to talk about struggling to trust in the midst of life's difficulties. So that's over-familiarity, that's independence and basically, you can say, when the crap hits the fan, right? Um, so, barriers. <clears throat> um, how many of you would say that you grew up in the Bible Belt? Okay, that's most of the room. Um, let me give a description. I would imagine that maybe more of you would raise your hand. Um, whenever I say the Bible Belt, I'm talking about the southern United States. A big swath of that is highly influenced by a Christian culture, right? So, this is, like, think about it. You drive around and you see churches on every corner around here. Even in towns of like 200 people, there's got to be like two or three churches, right? Um, this is the Bible Belt. This is you driving down the highways and there's verses up on billboards. 
That doesn't happen elsewhere in the nation, okay? Um, This is gospel presentations on billboards. Repent of your sins, trust Jesus, or else you'll go to hell. This is the Bible Belt. This is Christian values and biblical stories being shared cultural knowledge. Uh, That's sort of lessening, but it's still the case. And so uh, many of you have grown up in this. It's familiar. And you might have grown up personally in church. You might have grown up just kind of around church, churchy people. And so there's familiarity that you have, right? And even for some of you, it's uh, beliefs that are good and right and true. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth, took on flesh, that he lived a perfect life, he died for my sins on the cross, he raised from the dead three days later, and if I trust and believe in him, I can go to heaven, be saved from hell. Those are all true, right, and good. But what I want to point out to you is that even those good things that come from Bible Belt familiarity is just intellectual knowledge. Like these are just beliefs and facts. And the facts are good and we need them. But if it stops there, intellectual assent, it's not true faith. If it stops at intellectual assent, it is not true faith. James says it like this, even the devil or demons believe true things about God, and they shudder. But there's more to faith than that. And so this familiarity can kind of settle in to where you buy into this version of Christianity of, I just believe the right things, and then I have my fire insurance card where I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to be spared from hell, the rest of it doesn't really matter, I can kind of just mosey on through. And there's nothing of relational trust or dependence on God. Like there's no way that you're approaching him and saying, I need you desperately. And not only do I need you, I trust you to meet me in my need. See, this is exactly where I was whenever I came to school here at SFA. Back in 07, um, I'd grown up around Christian things. I'd grown up in the church, uh, numerous different traditions, I had some of the facts in place, and if you had asked me whenever I was a freshman walking in, I would have said I was a Christian. And yet I had never loved Jesus. Like if you came up to me and said, instead of, are you a Christian, if you said, do you love Jesus? I would have been like, what do you mean? (laughs) I mean, yeah, he died for me, That's, that's great. But I just had no category for a relationship with him. And it wasn't until later on in my first year at college where I began to, one, just be very aware of my sins that I was carrying around that I had wanted to change, I had wanted to get rid of, I had wanted to move past. But then, two, I began to read about Jesus in the Gospels and the craziest thing began to happen. Instead of just like this guy in a book, I actually began to believe in him as a real, living person. And I remember having these, like, times, and I wouldn't call him a vision. It was just, like, interacting with him in prayer where he would say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's good. And I remember thinking, on my back, I have all these sins <laughs> that I've tried to change, and I can't. And Jesus was like, I can take those. And so I began to confess my need. Like, there's things I can't change about myself, 
but I think you can. And I began to submit those things to him. And in that, I realized I love this guy. He is good. He's merciful and kind, and he can change me. He can give me life where there's only been death. It was at that point that I saw that there's a difference between intellectual assent, my familiarity I had grown up with, that had become this layer of inoculating me against approaching Jesus and saying, I am jacked up and I need you. And I trust you that you can come into my life and change it. There's a difference between intellectual familiarity and actually trusting Jesus. And so for some of you, like you need to push past just the familiarity that you have, just the facts that you have in your mind and actually cry out to the Lord and say, I need you. Like there is things that, there's things I can't change about myself. I need you. And not only do I need you, but I trust you. That you can come in and do what needs to be done. And I want that. Push past the familiarity and step into an actual relationship with God. The only thing that's preventing that is your own hesitation. Like God has set that on the table and he's beckoning you. Even now he's beckoning you. Okay. I could preach my whole sermon there. Let me keep going though. Um, Okay, independence. Um, there's There's this posture that we can have in our lives of independence and it just cuts off genuine faith in the Lord. Like, I'll say it like this. The basic sentence of your life could be put like this. Everything is in my hands and I'm directing my own life and I'm okay with that. Everything is in my hands, I'm directing my own life and I'm okay with that. That is the posture of independence. And so whenever life is going well and things are kind of rolling along smoothly, you feel pretty good, right? You actually feel like, hey, I got this thing together. And you look around and you're like, come on, people. Why don't you just do things a little bit more like me? Right? We've all felt that pride. Uh, but whenever things are going wrong, it's terrible. Like you feel the pressure and the weight of everything on you. You walk around in constant anxiety, in fear, in frustration, You feel like you're carrying this whole thing on your own and you're like panicking, right? But still at the root of your heart, you're saying, this is all in my hands. I'm directing my own life and I'm okay with that. This is the posture of independence. And what the Lord is calling you to now is renounce that. Like to come to him in humility says, I'm not in control. This is not all in my hands. I don't have control over what happens in my family. I don't have control over what happens in relationships. I don't have control over what happens in my body. Like I can't determine those things. But I know it's in your hands. I can't direct my life. Like I can make good decisions. I can do my best. But ultimately, the results, the consequences are in your hands. This is coming to God in relational humility. And then to take the next step and say, okay, not only am I not in control of these things, not only can I not guarantee the results, but I trust that you can guide. 
And I trust that you can lead me in the way that I need to be going. And I want you to. Many of us are walking around believing in Jesus and yet living independent from God. Humble yourselves. Depend on the Lord. I want you to see God the Father as a loving Father who whenever you reach up and say, I can't do it, I need you, who comes in and says, yeah, I know, it's okay, and grabs your hand and just walks with you and says, let's go. In love, leads you in love. That's the posture we're to have. Reject that independence, depend on the Lord in humility and in trust, and he will lead you. And then finally, there's, there's times in life where um, as I said, the crap hits the fan, and it's really hard to trust God. Um, I think I've asked this here before. How many of you have um, lost a family member or a friend in the past or recently? That's a fair bit of you. How many of you have seen somebody else struggle with health problems really severely or yourself personally struggle with those things? Yeah. And I could go on and on, right? Like relational conflict. All these things that make life feel like it's imploding in on itself. And it's whenever those things are happening that it's really, really hard to genuinely trust God. Like in those moments, these questions begin to arise. How the heck does this fit into your good plan? What are you doing and why haven't you stopped this yet? Why are you not providing the guidance or the healing or the reconnection that I just need there was a time in my life uh, around the same time that I described that I felt like this especially and it was pretty ironic because I had just finished writing a paper on God's sovereignty right so I just finished focusing on God is the ruler over all things he's in control of everything and then my niece who not more, is not even a year old, gets very quickly very sick, struggles, and then dies. And I remember just being overwhelmed with the wrongness of an infant dying. Like there's nothing that I've experienced so far that feels just so patently wrong. And I remember thinking, like, this is hard for me. How much more hard is it for my sister? And then I began to think about, like, in the world, how many infants die in a day? You know, my mind just has a dark path, and it kind of wanders down that. Um, and I just got overwhelmed. And I remember just having some, we'll say, profane pr- prayers with God. Like, what are you doing? How does this factor into your good plan? Why have you not answered any of these prayers yet? I don't know if many of you can relate to that. But I promise you, as you continue to walk with the Lord, those moments will come. That's not to scare you. It's just to acknowledge that's what it means to live as a human in a broken world, walking in relationship with God. There are going to be some prayers that are not nice and pretty and theologically accurate. Okay? And what the Lord taught me in that time was that even though my mind was flooded with questions, the thing that I needed was to remember what God has done in history in the past and what he's done in my personal life. You see, those questions made me want to like let go of the Father's hand and pull back and just say, look, I'm not walking with you anymore. Like, 
we need to stop and have a conversation. I might even kind of take my own path. But what the Lord showed me was, don't let go of my hand, cling tighter. Like, remember what I've done in history past. I loved my creatures so much that I took on flesh, became a man, lived amongst you, welcomed you, showed compassion and kindness to you, allowed you to treat me terribly, died for you, and I'm calling you to renewal. So I just had to be reminded of what God has done through Jesus. And then I had to be reminded of what God had done in my life, personally. That even though I was in darkness, he opened my eyes. He'd shown me mercy after mercy. He'd blessed me with wonderful friends in the church. He'd done mighty things all around me. And so it was as I began to reflect on these things that I began to strengthen my grasp on his hand. And I want to tell you, there was no answer that I got about why my knees died that was, there, there was nothing there. And I'll tell you, even if somebody were to walk up to me and give me an answer, it would not be satisfactory. There's nothing that can answer those questions except for knowing the character of the Father who loves me and continuing to squeeze tightly to his hands and walk with him. That's what got me through that time. That's what gets you through times like that. And so if you're in the midst of that, crap has hit the fan. Life feels like it's blowing up. The answer is not to let go of his hand and walk away. The answer is not to just stew in the questions that really are unanswerable, and even if you did have an answer, it wouldn't be satisfactory or helpful. The answer is to cling tighter to the Father's hands, reflect on what he's done before, reflect on what he's done in your life, and trust him. There are dark valleys, but the one who is light can lead you through them. There are dark valleys, but the one who is light can lead you through them. Trust him. Walk with him. So, I had to learn in my marriage what it meant to be humble and trusting and open to receive. I think that was the mercy of God because it's taught me what faith is. Yes, faith is belief in certain things, facts about history and about who Jesus is and what he's done, yes. But beyond that, below that, around that, it's a relational approach to God. Being humble before him, trusting him, opening yourself up to receive from him. This is what it looks like to walk with the Lord. And so, where faith is present, where you approach him in that humble, trusting openness, God is going to do mighty things. He's going to work in miraculous ways in your life, but he's also just going to show you that he's good, that he's faithful, and he's going to lead you to things you can't even fathom right now. And so the call tonight is just trust the Lord who's trustworthy.